Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, Mr. John Pop. John, how are you today? Oh, Jack, I'm so good. I'm ready to do this. Let's go. Very good. Well, this is our last podcast before Christmas, so I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. And best... Wish whatever people celebrate out there, Hanukkah, holidays, right, right. whatever, want to... Festivus. Yeah, Festivus. <laughs> Happy whatever to whatever you're, you you celebrate. But I would argue, even... even um, I would I would just argue without... You know, I'm not judging anyone else. I'm just... This is just my view. Right, right. Even aside from the, the very important religious aspects of it. But I'm not going to get into that. This is not the podcast for that. I would just say... Just as a matter of celebration, Christmas is the best holiday of the year. There you go. I'm so excited about now, it. If you want to talk coal or anything else, this is the podcast. <laughs> well, my family a number of years ago got me some coal for Christmas. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? And, yeah. <laughs> so funny. Anyway, so you have a daughter, right, John? Yes, I, I do. bet she loves Christmas, doesn't she? Oh, she was born on the 12th uh-huh. of December. So does that work out well for her I or agree. no? Yeah, great. Because yeah. we give her something. It, it's like the whole month is yeah. celebrate her. Well, only a month because in my oh. house, <laughs> I have a daughter who's 14. And I sometimes feel like every day is Christmas. Yep, that's right. She should feel Amen that way. Amen to that. But she loves Christmas. Good. Anyway. Now, do you have any plans for the upcoming holidays? Are you going to do anything um, fun? Going through this crazy thing with my tongue, it's going to yeah, be— That sounds like fun. It's going to be low-key. It's uh, going to yeah. be, yeah, uh, not to bring us down, but, you know, it's going to be focused on that. Yeah. So, But still family coming. Uh, my daughter's coming home, and we're going to stay around the home but have a great time. We're really looking forward to it. So, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. We are, uh, what are we going to do? We got a little vacation planned, and then um, I can't ever have any time off without going up to West Virginia and spending yeah. a few days. So, so that we'll, means a few days in the, in, in the woods, yeah. in the cabin, both? But, well, the cabin, is, it's not a cabin. I don't want to give people the wrong impression like I have some fancy cabin. I have a shed <laughs> that I, over the years, turned into <laughs> what you can stay in, and I call it a cabin. But wow. it started off very clearly as <laughs> a, shed. a shed. Let me guess, your family's not there, just you? Yeah, just me. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. Um, Man cave. <laughs> yeah. Now, my dad will, uh, he, he, he goes up there too, but he has a, he stays in a, um, not in my shed. No. He has a, a camper that he pulled in there oh. years ago. So Nice. Um, anyway. But yep. anyway, got that. Now, um, yes, yeah, so that's what we're doing. Now to our housekeeping. Yes. Um, always have to remember to remind people to email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thepowerhour at heritage.org. You got to email me. Let me know what you want to talk about, who you want to hear, how you think we're doing. If you think that after 2023, we should just shut this puppy down. <laughs> Whatever you think, let us know. Never. Now, John, where can they find us? We are, look up Herd at Heritage. If I can say it, Heard It Heritage, The Power Hour. You get it wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Ricochet, you name it. And just 
subscribe and share. Subscribe and share. Definitely do that. Hey, you should give a subscription to the Power Hour out for Christmas. That would be a real crowd pleaser. Oh, man, I'll give it to everyone. <laughs> we need to start selling merch. That's yeah. what we need to do. How about a Jack Spencer bobblehead? Yeah, that's what I'm talking <laughs> there about. There you go. <laughs> the kids would love it. The kids would love it for sure. I would love it. Yeah, well. You have at least be able to sell one or two. I'd buy one, I guess. There you go. Is there? Can you imagine having my own bobblehead that oh. I would have on my own oh, the the dashboard? That the would best. be good. So anyway, all right. We have a podcast to do here. Enough of this jibber jabber. And I'm excited about today's podcast. Not only is the is today's topic important, but it's fun. Now, John, let me ask you something. When you think of environmental issues, do you sort of think of the left? Or they're right, politically speaking. <laughs> Left. Right. So maybe I should ask this. Who do you, or maybe more accurately, what side of the aisle do you think folks generally would argue care more about things like environmental health and conservation? Left. Well, I would submit to you. <laughs> this is just not the case, John. <laughs> what? What are the leftiest places that you can think of on Earth, in history? What are the leftiest ones? San Francisco. <laughs> You took my joke. It's the Soviet Union, oh, China, Cuba, and San Francisco. And do any of them have a pristine environment? No. Or did they? No, they do not. Yet, we have allowed the left to drive this narrative on the environment, and they have effectively used that yep. to dominate and advance their agenda. Yep. But we can see with our own eyes, our own eyes, that their policies do not work. They provide bad environmental outcomes, China, San Francisco, <laughs> etc. Conservatives, on the other hand, do care about the environment and care about conserving things. Yet we don't get credit for that. Well, today, today, we have a guest who's going to talk to us about conservatism and conservation. Awesome. And more importantly about some of the big issues facing us and how we should be thinking about them. Now, I don't want to say this person is going to tell us how to think about them. We are independent-minded people around here. Yes. So no one tells us how to think about anything, but they will shed light on how, as conservatives, we might want to yep. address these issues. We have to get into that space. Right. Yep. We might even talk a little bit of hunting, so that will be fun. We almost surely will talk about that. <laughs> of course. I am so excited to introduce to our Power Hour audience, Gabriella Hoffman. Now, Gabriella is director of the Center for Energy and Conservation at the Independent Women's Forum. She is an outdoor writer, a podcaster. If it has to do with, like, media and communicating on these issues, she does it. And I should add, she's also my good friend, John Pop's good friend. Yes, I've known her for years. She is the best people around. So, Gabriella, welcome to the Power Hour. Thank you guys for having me, and it's so good to be reunited with John Pop. My early DC radio days on the Cam and Company show, I think oh, 2012, yeah. he was an integral part of that, and they brought me on as a young whippersnapper, just fresh out of college, so it's good to revisit and good to finally meet you and, and talk about these very important issues. Well, thank you for being here. Um, well, you, you, you sort of set the path for us. You talked a little bit about your early career. I'm, I'm curious. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey. Like, your um, well, no, before we get to your journey, give us a quick synopsis of sort of where you are and what you do, and then and then we'll go back and let backfill how you got to there because people don't know where you are, what you do. So let's fill that in. Then we'll do how you got there. Yeah, well, I've actually been involved in the conservative movement for 14 years, 
and I'm not the most visible person out there. I, I have a platform and I have some a digital footprint that's pretty wide, but you know, media changes and you kind of go away for a time. And I did when I was building my freelance business, came back and you kind of have to reintroduce yourself even if you've been there and you have bylines. But uh, you mentioned the Soviet Union. My parents fled the Soviet Union, saw how bad environmental conditions were. Mm -hmm. They love the environmental conditions here much better. And they see the confluence of free enterprise and environmental stewardship far better than what they saw in what is now independent Lithuania, but previously Soviet-occupied Lithuania. And I grew up in California, not San Francisco. I grew up in Orange County, California, <laughs> which was a, a very great playground to grow up. And it's still Reagan country. I'm obviously a conservative, too, have been a lifelong conservative, given my upbringing and, and where I grew up and, and my parents and, and our family story. And I grew up fishing and cognizant of the outdoors. And I was, if I wasn't, you know, doing something, it was largely, you know, always spending time outdoors. I was going to the beach. I was going hiking. I was going fishing with my dad since I was a little tyke. I think I picked up fishing for the first time at eight years old and got seriously hooked, pun intended, uh, when I was 12 years old. So it was a lifelong activity. And, and when you start early, studies show that when you start fishing or some outdoor activity really early, you're 90, 90 some odd percent sure that you're going to stick with that activity for the long haul well into adulthood. So I have. And that expanded from being interested in fishing to being interested in shooting sports and then hunting uh, a little later in life when I became more of an adult or rather more seasoned as a young adult. Uh, by the time I was 26, I formally got into hunting, shooting sports. I think I was 19, 20. So it was like every seven years I was picking up these milestones with respect to uh, my interest in the outdoors. But I went to national parks with my parents. We always you know, we, I grew up near Disneyland, but I wasn't the biggest Disney fanatic. I went a few times, but my parents thought, why don't you go to the, the real Disneyland, to nature? And that's kind of how we kind of set ourselves up there in terms of love of the outdoors. But for me, there's a personal connection. And I think anyone working in the environment, conservation, stewardship space should have a connection. The left, unfortunately, doesn't, although they love to portray that they do, which is why they have such a stranglehold on these issues. And I know we'll go more into it. But for me and for those of us who are conservative leaning, who hunt and fish, we have a very deep personal connection to these activities and to these spaces, because without these spaces, we wouldn't be able to do these activities. And there's a huge difference. And I know you've probably talked about this before, but if your listeners are unaware what we see environmentalism today manifested as is what is known as preservation. Some forms of preservation, you know, keeping things in their kind of serene, untouched condition is fine, like a national park or some other more sensitive areas. That's appropriate where needed. It should not be the main dictate of conservation policy. Conservation is the wise use of natural resources, including, you know, energy development where appropriate, uh, hunting and fishing, grazing, ranching where appropriate, logging, timber where appropriate. And, and there are a lot of places where it's appropriate, and there are some areas, let's say on multiple-use public land, where you want more recreation access, but it can divvy up and, and be accommodated very well. But we see those two terms conflated with one another. Preservation is what the left is usually advocating for. Um, even beyond that, it's a more extreme term. Rewilding is going to be a term a lot of our compatriots, and I think your listeners will be hearing about very soon. There was a study recently I forget, uh, there was a bunch of people, I think a Cornell professor and someone from Michigan who were pushing this idea that hunters, the true conservationists, were behind biodiversity destruction, imperiling wildlife. And I, I read this study and I was like, anyone can make a study. Anyone can have a study. You know, they don't really adhere to the scientific method. They already have their conclusion and their thesis or they, they have a predetermined rather conclusion to their thesis. It's not really thought out well. And if you fund it, you know, if you get the funding, you can have your own conclusion in your own study, too. So it's very subjective. And just to see stuff like that with rewilding, this rewilding language, 
which is tied to preservation, it concerns me. And, and the fact that these people have dominance in media and academia, in politics, somewhat on the left, especially, we don't really see this creeping into the right, although they have tried to creep into our circles um, in some occasions, but they're not successful. But this kind of preservationist rewilding movement has taken hold of environmentalism. And that is why a lot of people, thankfully, are seeing beyond it, the, the COP28 summit you all heard about, and I think your listeners are aware of some of the declarations and proclamations that were um, figured out or concluded there. Although non-binding, they're still very concerning. The net zero meat plan, the global food systems plan, uh, the the declaration short of phasing out fossil fuels, transitioning away. And there's also a biodiversity component to conservation component in a separate conference that happened last year in Montreal, where a lot of these ideas about rewilding and preservation are talked about. But again, they're packaging it as conservation. So since I've been doing this work, I, I lecture to students across the country in a lecture called Conservation is Conservative, where I'm trying to inculcate them with this idea that this is what conservation looks like. And even though conservation is not a partisan idea, conservatives can have a stake in it and can shape it and can attune it to our values. Um, and, and there's nothing at odds with it. So packaging it to people in our audience also is a worthwhile endeavor because I think even young people today don't know what it is. Sometimes young Republicans or conservatives are captured by this climate alarmist rhetoric, thinking that that's where they have to incline themselves to be, but say, well, this is a free market climate solution. And it doesn't sound very different than the left, where it may be, let's say, agreeing to arbitrary deadlines or phase outs by some, you know, 2040, 2050. Maybe in contrast with the left, they'll agree with like a 10 year delay right. of a phase out or it's always a light version of the left. A lot of the times. Yes, unfortunately. And so that's why I have grown interested in these issues across the years. I, I've been writing about these issues on and off for the better part of a decade, but got more seriously into it um, in the recent like half decade or so uh, that I've been doing a lot of this writing. And I've, I've done a lot of outdoor writing in field and stream, outdoor life. I'm very familiar with the outdoor industry, which does tend to lean very center-right too. But I have encountered a lot of people who are middle of the road, a little bit center-left, and they're actually very easy to work with. And you find some commonality with them. Sometimes you disagree on the political component, but there's a lot of people you know, in shooting sports, hunting, and fishing who love individualism. They are self-preservationists. They want to protect hunting heritage, fishing heritage, public spaces, property rights. Um, and I, I think also kind of a, a top line item for conservation before we move on to more of your questions is you don't have to have public lands access be at odds with property rights. And I think we as conservatives can make that case. That's what we do with Independent Women's Forum uh, through my directorship. Since I've assumed the role, I was previously a senior fellow. Um, and in my writing at townhall.com, my podcast, District of Conservation, we talk about this. So we, we can put these ideas out there. And I think we are starting to see that. And I don't want to be the only person doing this. Uh, I would love you know more people like you and, and others that I work with uh, to also weigh in and champion these ideas more prominently, too. Well, that's what we're going to do today. There are 100 things in what you just said that I want to ask about further. We are going to spend a lot of time today talking about how conservatives and applying conservative values to conservation and environmental issues makes sense. And we've already done that. And we're going to do that again. But I want to take just a moment and pick on conservatives. I'm wondering if what you and, and I, I hadn't thought this was not a pre thought about question just sort of occurred to me as we were talking. I wonder if conservatives don't sometimes deserve the criticism they get, not as a whole. Now, I shouldn't say conservatives deserve, deserve the criticism they get on, on environmental issues. I wonder if there's not a subset of conservatism 
that has had an outsized impact on people's views on conservatives and environmental issues. And by that, I mean, I can recall throughout my career engaging with people who legitimately don't care about the environment or who, who speak in terms of who cares. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, there, there's them and there's the, and I don't think this is the case anymore, but I think that there is the image of the Republican, not the conservative, but the Republican, especially the Northeast limousine Republican who probably didn't care about the environment so much. And I wonder if, um, if, if we as conservatives are still trying to unwind some of the, um, per- the, the perception harm that has been caused by those groups. I don't, is that a thing, do you think? I think it's less of a concern today than it was in the past because I've interviewed a lot of people who work in the extractive industries, hunting, fishing, mining, fracking, oil and gas, and it maybe wasn't honed in before, but now today in terms of obviously being in compliance with reasonable rules, not you know obtuse rules that prevent you from having your business. But I think a lot of these companies, not because of pressure from preservationists or radicals, I think because they realized Um, There are better incentives or why would we want to destroy our surroundings, Mm -hmm. especially if we're supplying jobs? Do we really want to have tainted water? Do we really want to have ugly, you know, landscapes? Do we want to have multiple uses? And so I think the majority of people in these industries that are vilified often, um, the so-called extractive or consumptive industries, they have retooled their efforts. They're not purposely spilling into the riverways. They're not trying to intentionally, you know, poison the well or, or food supply. And, and they're very conscious about how much land square footage wise they use. You go to a fracking site, they only use maybe one eighth of an acre. Mm-hmm. They drill down and they're very careful about, you know, everyone's like, well, they're injecting chemicals. It's like, I didn't see any chemicals being injected. Um, when I observed one in Northwest Pennsylvania, they're very mindful, you know, and it doesn't cause earthquakes as much of the left says. And you go to like oil fields and, and derricks, and I haven't formally gone to those, but I I know people who've worked in those industries. I've talked to some mining executives recently in Alaska, and they said, if we were in the business of destroying the land that we're wanting to profit off of, we would be fined. We would be chased out of Alaska. We would face so many penalties. And they also work in very sensitive places. One of the mining companies we spoke to um, works out of a national monument because Alaska is 90 some odd percent federal land. So Mm -hmm. They're working with a situation that could be tenuous if they're not very careful about how they go about their business and drilling and extracting rare earth minerals or rare earth elements, rather. And so in in a lot of these places where people don't know much about unless they actually go there and they speak to people on the ground, they will find out and be shocked that like they're very careful about where they drill or where they refine or where they pull, you know, certain materials out of because it's often near very sensitive places. And again, they have a lot of regulations. They have to comply. And a lot of those people also hunt and fish, mm-hmm. oddly enough, you know, activities that boost conservation in many, many regards. And so when you speak to these people who are consumptive users or consumptive, let's say, um, individuals or, or their industries require that you take some natural resources or you replenish natural resources like those in agriculture. Uh, the cows are really great on the landscape. You need the cows, even though the cows are often vilified for emitting methane and, and whatnot. But if the cows weren't there, that grass will not be managed. Um, their fertilizer repurposes and replenishes the land, makes it fertile. Um, and private landowners, farmers, ranchers, including, um, they happen to have prime habitat for endangered species. Most endangered species live on private land. People don't know this. Mm-hmm. And so if, if those people were in the business of wanting to destroy the environment, they wouldn't be doing what they do. 
And they, they, I think they have a mindset now where we don't want to be like these robber barons, develop everything, put a Walmart on every corner. We don't want a Walmart on every corner. It would look ugly. And I say this as someone who has shopped at Walmart in the past, and, and I do occasionally today. But it's like a, a big box stores, nobody wants to see that in Yellowstone. If, if you do, there's something wrong with you, in my personal opinion. But um, de wise development is fine if it's done well. Um, we have heard some proposals, even from some somewhat the pre former president, for 15-minute cities on public lands. And I was like, this is kind of what the left is proposing. Why are you doing this? Don't do this. Um, and so where you develop every little bit in certain sensitive rural areas. And you don't want to do that. That's another extreme. But back to your point, I don't think those people really influence things now. And I think the culture has changed and environmental standards are a lot higher these days. And so they don't want to be despoilers of the environment because they benefit from the environment themselves for multiple reasons, personally, professionally, commercially. And so I, I don't think we have this mindset anymore. There are still a few outliers. Certainly, it's probably some greedy developers who want to develop every tract of acre. You see this in Yellowstone, which is a great show, very dramatized, but you see very developed you know, land-hungry people, and we have some land-hungry people uh, maybe who might get empowered through the SEC, which we'll talk about a little later. And, you know, and I was going to say, and they probably exist more on the left than on the right. They the actually do, <laughs> because Republicans are often accused of wanting to sell private lands. But this thing we're going to talk about, this really bizarre policy that could come through the SEC um, if it were to be finalized, this this would actually counteract that perception or rather that uh, stereotype and, and assign it more so to the left. Um for, for various nefarious reasons. But no, I don't I don't think we have that caricature much. Maybe in the 50s, this was the case. I wasn't born in the 50s. I was born in the 90s. So I don't remember that so much. And I'm only first generation American. But um, if we did have people who had that kind of ill thinking, it's certainly been shed because conservation is at the core with a lot of these companies, energy, agriculture, outfitting. Um, they they want to have a connection or if they have a connection, they don't want to lose that connection by despoiling everything around them. So I, I would say we don't have to worry about it, but if we do see those people, we do have to bring some sense into them. Yeah, I agree with all of that, and we can move on from it. I, I just try to get – I try to understand why conservatives have this reputation of not caring about the environment, and liberals, people on the left, are able to successfully portray themselves as as, as protectors of the environment – when it just isn't true. It's just not true. So I want to talk about something else. You mentioned this idea of rewilding. Can you tell us a little bit about what rewilding is and why we should be concerned about it? And I might have a couple of follow-up questions. I'll keep it as simple as possible because it shouldn't be so long-winded. But this notion of rewilding is to put back the United States into a pre-settlement kind of naturalscape. And you don't need to be a scientist. You don't need to be an anthropologist to know or extrapolate from this. But my reading into this is it would ultimately kick off people from the landscape. We're viewed kind of in this preservationist line of thinking that humans are in totality bad for the environment. The fewer of us there are, the better the environment is. So that's how you can kind of think of rewilding big picture. But what it would do is it would lead to, let's say, maybe demolishing you know, structures or maybe displacing people from their homes um, it could look in the form of, let's say, someone sells their private farm to a nonprofit like the Nature Conservancy. They demolish the structures, put that permanently in a conservation easement. And then let's say it could be morphed into a conservation area, which is what we'll talk about a little bit with the SEC rule that's coming down the pike. But let's say they are able to, in the so-called conservation area, have millions of acres. 
under, let's say, whether it's a natural asset company or if it's a nonprofit or the federal government or kind of um, a co-management between a natural asset company, a financial asset manager, the federal government. Um, and so they could take those lands out of uses, so make it for non-uses, and then rewild it. We're seeing actually these rewilding movements outside of the United States more prominently in countries like Scotland. I just watched a documentary called The Last Keeper about um, hunters in Scotland who deal with red, you know, they target red stag, pheasants, or uh, I forget what the other pheasant is called, um, sage grouse, sorry, a grouse variety. That's that's the, the species. So a lot of these wealthy kind of foreign investors from Scandinavia and other places are setting their sites in Scotland. They're acquiring these farms and these in hunting operations and converting them into these kind of rewilding sanctuaries. So they're putting in trees that are not native. Um, they're actually using Douglas fir. And, and when you plant kind of non-native trees, it kind of doesn't do well um, if you're not you know, an arborist or you don't really know. So, so they're creating these kind of wild playgrounds where they say- I'm sorry. Even if you're not an arborist, you should know. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> certain trees do not work in certain habitats, unfortunately. So sometimes great gestures, you know, to plant trees may not work well. Although I do think we do want trees because they absorb carbon and they're great. I mean, and seeing trees being chopped down for solar and wind farms irks me a lot, um, especially when you know that they absorb carbon. Um, but rewilding, yes, could mean that, like, like I said, this kind of confluence between public and private interests, or it could be a wealthy landowner like this example in Scotland where they're creating these like wild playgrounds or kind of like, I wouldn't say zoos, but like sanctuaries in a sense where they're like, we're going to have habitat for like deer to roam and these other endangered species to roam. And it's going to be so great. Do they hunt them, by the way, in, in, in these Scotland, instances? They do. No, not in these uh, rewilding spaces, okay. so to speak. And actually what they're doing um, when these kind of interests come in, in a, and purchase these lands, they just shoot these animals. It's market game hunting, shooting them, you know, unethically and just killing so many in mass when you could let the games keepers, you know, bring clients to hunt one or two, yeah. whatever is allowed. Um, so it actually leads to destruction of native species. Often from what this documentary, The Last Keeper, was showing, um, that's maybe a more extreme isolated case. But here they have these like biospheres. That's what they'll want to do. Or like we see with certain reintroduction of, let's say, apex predators like grizzly bears or... That was the issue I, I wanted to get to. Um, yeah, I didn't ask you about the rewilding just to get to this issue. But when I said I might have a follow up, it's on that because I was wondering what your perspective was on that, because part of the rewilding um, concept is also putting this same uh, repopulating all of the animals where they originally were in their historic ranges. Yes, Right. And I think a lot of folks don't realize how wide the grizzly range was mm -hmm. or the the gray wolf range was, or the elk range was. Yep. And my personal view, and I'm not a conservation expert by any means. I just sort of dabble in it. Um, my view is, is that we should want animals on the landscape. Absolutely. And we I should, fully believe that view. Right. We definitely want to have that, the landscape um, hold as many animals as it naturally can hold. Not exceeding its carrying capacity. Yes. yes. And um, and to the extent that it is um, consistent with society and, and whatever, to expand that range as much as possible. Mm -hmm. However, I'm also against um, reestablishing the historical range of the grizzly bear or even the wolf. Or I think, although for personal reasons. They may be reasons, doing this to uh, the badger, too. Um, you know, all of these things. and Or wolverine. That's the one they focused on and, recently. Um, you know, the uh, <laughs> I, I was... Uh, well, anyway, 
that that's a, that's a big part of this that people need to understand. Understand that if you you can be for um, having lots of grizzly bears without being for reestablishing the historic range of the grizzly bear. Is and that where you are? Exactly. I'm no, I fully agree with that view, and it's actually unscientific to support this rewilding effort in terms of restoring them to their historic ranges. That means grizzly bears or wolves will never be delisted because how it used to be before Biden's administration came in was you would delist or delist you would, from the Endangered Species, species Act, Act yeah. which has its own regulatory whenever it's on the endangered species I'm just trying to give folks some background. Yes, of course. When things are on the Endangered Species Act it comes with all this regulatory power that Washington holds over that range. So there are people who would argue that certain animals once they and an interesting side note of the whole Endangered Species Act story is that there are animals that meet the Endangered Species Act, um, what the plan was to reestablish those animals, yet they remain on the list because once you take them off the list, management of those animals goes back to the state and yep. takes away the power from Washington. So things like grizzly bears and wolves, wolves especially, but grizzly bears secondarily in certain populations, the Endangered Species Act has restored them. Has restored them. But because they're not on the historical range, Washington maintains control over those, um, the regulatory control over those animals. That's a good summary, yes. And it's actually these environmental groups like Sierra Club, the Natural Resources Defense Council, Center for Biological Diversity, Earth Justice. They petition this administration in particular, and usually Democratic administrations, to keep species perpetually listed, even if the science says this population, grizzly bears used to be managed by uh, their kind of like um, individual population segments. So the grizzly bear in Yellowstone has met the criteria, I don't know how many times over. It's over a thousand individuals now in that particular segment, far exceeding the carrying capacity. It was supposed to reach maybe 400, 500 individuals. It's almost double, triple over now. And they have, the scientists have concluded on the ground in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho that the bear has met the threshold of recovery. And they were about to proceed with the hunt. Trump's administration delisted it with using science. And it's funny. We hear this, you know, follow the science thing, but not when it comes to wildlife management. That's a, that's a funny exception. Inconsistency applied there. Um, but kind of a line of this, like, rewilding thing, rewilding mentality is science goes out the window. It does not matter if the science does not support keeping things perpetually listed or the science says you cannot restore to a historic range. That sets unrealistic standards. You will never have anything delisted. And only 3% of species at most have been successfully delisted. Most species, 99% have been, you know, prevented from going extinct, but it does a terrible job on the other side of recovery and delisting because these charismatic megafauna, for the most part, they raise a lot of money for these groups. Mm -hmm. So you take them off the list, they will lose their bread and butter in terms of how they fundraise and sweeten up donors um, because, you know, who, who wouldn't love, and you should absolutely love gray wolves and bears. Like, they're much to respect. I, I admire them. I love seeing them in the wild. I've seen grizzly bears several times. I saw some in Alaska. They're known as brown bears up there. I've heard wolves in Yellowstone when I went camping there. They need to be there. Nobody is contending that they have to all die or be shot to death. No, no, no. By no means, because they're necessary as part of the ecosystem. But rewilding says that they just have to redominate the landscape, take out people, and if people get eaten to death or they get attacked or mauled or severely injured, who cares? We brought it upon ourselves because we invaded their turf. And so it's like that animal rights perspective in a sense, and, and no, they don't view that we can 
coexist so much and and we don't see regulation really reflecting right now coexistence we see the animals put ahead of people not both viewed on an equal footing maybe not an equal footing not exactly i'm not saying give <laughs> rights to animals you know no human rights to animals <laughs> but i'm saying like where we can co-share no i know i i just couldn't help myself i couldn't help myself it's like um, I don't want to be an equal to, you know, an animal. No, no, no. no. Animals are people too, Jack. We, we want um we want we want adequate and appropriate protections for animals. Yes. And especially for native animals and we sh- and, and and We do not want to see deer, turkey, bear become extinct again like they right. were in the early 20s. That was awful. And the buffalo. We should be having buffalo on the landscape, but our predecessors unfortunately did not have control over how much to hunt and they hunted them to extinction and we could have a lot more buffalo buffalo is very delicious and actually we do see buffalo aren't totally wiped off the existence here in the united states actually on the private side we have far more privately owned buffalo bison than we do those in the wild and we see some efforts like believe it or not one really good company um and i would say they're really great too not going so crazy with evs but toyota company has entered a partnership with one of the tribes in south dakota to restore a herd on public land out there. So you see companies that are not virtue signaling who actually believe in conservation and mm-hmm. have a place to, you know, say it or, or to practice it. Um, they're doing that. They're partnering with people on the ground to reintroduce these species. But yeah, we made a mistake uh, about wiping out the buffalo. And we're hopefully learning from our errors, of course, with respect to that. Well, it, not just the buffalo. Yes, the buffalo more than, I don't want to say more than any other species, but of the big Big mammal species. Charismatic megafauna. Chari- charismatic megafauna. They were probably the most devastated because they mm-hmm. were literally almost extinct. I know. It's terrible. Um, but really across the board, American um, American wildlife was devastated because of market hunting mm-hmm. and different um, uh, – a lack of respect for con- conservation values. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, this is something that I, wa- that the, the, I wanted to talk about and this fits right into it. In North America, they came up with a different approach to animal we to did. land con- to to um, species conservation, and um, called the North American model of species conservation. And it, I don't. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And the reason I'm bringing it up not only because it's interesting because it's such a great success story, mm-hmm. um, but it's starting to be chipped away in certain parts of the country, and. The absurdities that leads to. So let's talk. Let's start with the North American model of species conservation. Sure. What that is, and then we'll, we'll we'll sort of go from there. Yeah. So the North American model of wildlife conservation. It's not a formalized document, but it's like maybe nine or eleven principles that kind of guide hunting and fishing in the United States. You're treating it as a public resource. You're engaging in fair chase, and many many other timeless good principles that have largely been implemented into certain policies at Department of Interior, BLM, Forest Service, and the other. And state management and state, agencies. Yes. So, and biology is an important part yes, of it. Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll go into oh. kind of the laws. Yeah, no, no. It's all good. Um, so this model, I guess it predated or maybe it came about the same time as Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson. So we have, because of like we've been talking about, the near extinction of, let's say, commonly seen species today. Uh, turkey, white-tailed deer, black bear, what have you, um, Americans realized at their own behest that if we want to see these animals on the landscape, if we want to eat them or hunt them, 
we have to improve our practices. We can't hunt everything out towards extinction or kill more than what is necessary or more than your lot. And so this is what gave birth to certain federal laws. So we have the Pittman-Robertson Act of 1937, which relates to hunting in particular and shooting sports. And then we have the Dingle-Johnson Act, which is from 1950 relating to fishing and boating. And both of these laws, since they're coming into being, um, in totality, I think $27 billion has been raised to go back to conservation to the states in almost 100 years. That's very impressive. You don't see any other mechanism. I don't even think private contributions, per se, um, rival that so much yet. But in terms of establishing a model, that is what first came. And then you can, saw can the— I, Can I just clar- uh, not clarify, add one thing mm-hmm. so that people know— the way these pieces of legislation raise money is that there's a fee on the sale of an excise tax, an excise tax on the sale of things like guns, ammunition, ammunition, guns, and all fishing you know, tackle, yeah. archery equipment, motor and, oil. Yeah, and all that goes back into that's what has traditionally, though not exclusively, and probably less so today, the funding for the conservation efforts of different states. Yes, and that actually is largely being done today, and and a lot of it is being fueled by gun purchases and ammunition purchases. And like I said, that $27 number is a lot to speak of. It's a big number, and it goes to things like hunters' education courses, habitat restoration efforts, wildlife conservation efforts, and more recently, people don't know this, the construction of public target shooting ranges. And those monies are apportioned to the amount of licenses and land area in each state. So... I would assume probably Texas or I think it's Texas because they have the most number of hunters. I think it's a million plus or Alaska. Um, but I think it's, it's probably Texas because they have the largest and they have a big land mass. And, and so it, it's divvied up by those kind of metrics. So some states get more money than others. Um, but I think a lot of them get a good share of that money. And because of the success of this excise tax model, which manufacturers like and support, there, there's often discussion in, in the center-right space of, is this an infringement on your Second Amendment rights? And I tell people, if this were an infringement, um, you would see the firearms manufacturers oppose it. I have not seen any firearm manufacturer oppose this law. What is their argument for it being a, an infringement on Second Amendment rights? Because they don't understand what an excise tax is. So they think it's a tax on the consumer when it's actually a tax levied on the manufacturer. So they're saying it's a tax on guns, yes. and thereby that's why it's mm-hmm. a tax mm-hmm. on your Second Amendment right? And mm-hmm. well, Okay. But um, there is the other side of the pendulum. Um, if they, let, let's say, I think most people agree with the 10 and 11% excise tax rates. And let's say if you were to eliminate, if manufacturers were, um, let's say, wanting to rid of it, but I don't see that appetite for that yet or anytime soon. Um, it does not result in a lower cost of your gun because that's dictated by demand in the market. Um, so even if the manufacturers hypothetically were to get rid of that excise tax, you wouldn't see a decrease in your price. And, and gun prices are increasing because supply is so low. Um, that's just how things work. Um, so even if you were to entertain that idea, it wouldn't lead to it. But where it can get dangerous, like I said, the 10 and 11 percent are acceptable percentages. What we see problematic um, is like what California recently did. It levied, I think now it's a 23% excise tax. So port, part of those portions, anytime you purchase a gun or ammunition, will go towards gun violence prevention, so to gun control. Um, and so they're like, oh, we're going to borrow this and take that money away from conservation. Or you see 
more asinine proposals like that of Don Beyer, Congressman Don Beyer, who wants to impose an 1,000% excise tax. When you have efforts like that, that as an actual infringement because of how it's oriented and how it's right. crafted. But as an excise tax in itself and the way that this has been distributed and, and where those monies are going to, and especially now including public target shooting ranges, why would something that's anti-Second Amendment go towards building target ranges where you can exercise your Second Amendment? So it it's a very easy point to refute. Um, and I think, you know, we'll have that debate, of course. You know, some people will be like, this is insufficient. You know, it's all a tax. But like I said, it's levied on the manufacturers. And you won't see that price difference go away. You're not going to pay 10 or 11% less. And we instituted that tax because we saw that those monies can go back to rehabilitating species, to improving waters, improving different things and going towards fish stocking and to, you know, building some sort of shelter for wildlife observation. And those monies in Virginia, if anyone lives in Virginia, Pittman-Robertson money went recently to restore the elk population in our state. So could you imagine if we did not have that? Um, and also we had private public partnerships. We had a lot of people on the ground. I got to meet the gentleman who was the instigator behind reintroduction efforts. Lovely man works in the coal industry, oil and gas industry. And he wanted to kind of be behind this effort to reintroduce elk there because coal fields or reclaimed coal fields are phenomenal habitat for deer and elk. Um, it's very That's fertile. where I hunt. Yes. That's what I have. <laughs> so um, you, when you see tangibly where those monies are going to and you kind of look beyond kind of what is being told about it and you see that you're not having your rights restricted or you're not, you know, seeing things improperly abused. Um, I think the tax foundation called it one of the best crafted excise taxes ever. And they said that if people want to look to an excise tax system, they look at PR, they look at Dingle Johnson. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very popular law. I don't see polling um, so far that supports undoing it. And, and I was recently at a Congressional Sportsman Foundation conference, and there was polling on PR and Dingle Johnson and actually had like approval in the high 70s, low 80s. So right now there's no appetite to do it. Um, unless for some odd reason the Supreme Court, you know, is, is given a case and it traces back to Bruin arguing that this is an imposition. Although I haven't seen any language from the Supreme Court saying mm -hmm. this is illegal or problematic because, again, it's it's a very well thought out tax. It's led to the recovery of different things and why we have so many pristine places mm -hmm. and, and nature and uh, so many different opportunities to go hunting and fishing um, because of this. It, it's not it's not reductive. It's additive overall. And, and I think sometimes conservatives lose that. And when they push efforts like a bill called the Return Act, which is, I think, what Andrew Clyde did, and his staffer was very angry with me, claiming I misrepresented his views. But I said, um, you know, their, their way of trying to replace the money, you know, from PR, from offshore oil and gas exploration, from Land and Water Conservation Fund, given this administration, where do you think you're going to recoup those funds? They're trying to stop offshore oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to be fair to them, um, reassessing, you know, what would they do? Like half of those monies, what was it? 1.6 billion was raised from PR last year. And their proposal was to shrink it half to 800 million and have that recouped by offshore oil and gas. But offshore oil and gas is being undermined mm -hmm. by this administration. So their plan didn't make any sense. And again, it went to this, oh, this is restricting the Second Amendment. And like I said, the manufacturers who are fighting tooth and nail to keep the Second Amendment, they're not opposed to Pittman-Robertson. So it's a very minority position. Um, there And so that's why we can say hunters and anglers are conservationists, because it's been estimated that of those, let's say, uh, $27 billion, I've seen estimates that, um, let's say, shooting sports um, or these activities rather in totality, hunters and anglers can be responsible for about 60 to 80 percent of this funding. Mm -hmm. It kind of fluctuates, but at minimum 60 and as high as 80. And so to 
for for environmentalists, let's we'll go into this direction. Um, for environmentalists to say that hunters and anglers are destroying the environment, the money shows otherwise, and the outcomes show otherwise. Exactly. What began that back and forth was we were talking about the North American model of wildlife conservation, as opposed to this is one of the great stories about America, I think, as opposed to the European model where hunting is very much a um, a pastime of the elite. Yep. It is a pastime of the of, of, of the former kings, and that and that um, culture remains today. That's why you see rich people on horses chasing foxes, and not you know some guy with a raccoon cap out in the woods um, trying to, to 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 feed their family, and that the that America democratized hunting, mm-hmm. and um, that democratization took some time to. Um, to properly um, manage, but that's what the North American model did. It took that democratization of of hunting, which ne- didn't exist before, because you would literally be killed if you killed the king's deer, right? Um, and created a system that has just been tremendously successful. That's why we have all these deer and turkey and bears and everything, and um, and so why I think if 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 that was where things stood then great. It's an interesting story, but it doesn't matter. Where it becomes an issue is as wildlife agents, state wildlife agencies in left of center, if not straight up leftist states, are beginning to undermine that model. And instead of using the um, the symbiotic relationship between hunters and wildlife managers, they are taking away the hunter part and and trying to manage species in some other way. Or not at all. Or not at all. And <laughs> yeah. the result is too too many. And then they have to go out and kill them themselves. It's the most insane thing it I've is. ever seen in my life. Counties do this too, <laughs> even in purple and red states. But you're you're alluding to, I would say, the case of Washington State. This is the most prominent example. In California example. too. In California. There are groups that are, again, at the heart of their mission is rewilding. Yeah. And they claim it's democratizing wildlife management decisions to remove hunters and anglers, but it's the very exact opposite yeah. because it's then going to be very few people, very few stakeholders deciding what happens. So, yes, California, where I'm from, um, really, I think, underappreciated hunters and anglers, and they took various different steps. They forbid forms of hunting, mountain lion management, and that was in the 90s, um, a few years before I was born. And they were very influenced by let's say, preservationist environmentalists, and they slowly alienated, let's say, the pro-hunters or the pro-anglers who were sitting on their board. So now, I I don't know who exactly sits on California's game and fish, but they have started to scurry and and are a little desperate to kind of, excuse me, bring back the the hunters and anglers into the fold because they've alienated them or they said, like, oh, we're losing a lot of money because these monies are not coming in anymore with fewer people buying licenses. And they still have a good number comparably. I think they have a couple hundred thousand people who hunt and fish um, each in each category in the state. I think there are far more anglers than there are hunters in California. Um, but they, it really matters who you elect as governor. And I, I even tell my people, or people I know rather, on the left or in kind of the middle, I say, you know, I hate to make this a partisan thing, but you have to be really mindful of who you elect. And you have to make sure if it, the person is more center left, if you're in a more bluish state, that they follow the North American model or they appoint people who do. Um, so far in some states like Pennsylvania, so far that is still upheld. 
And I'm not worried about that right now because their game commission is pretty strong, really well organized. I am worried about states like Colorado, where they are trying to have this divorce from hunters and anglers from conservation decisions. But like you said, most prominently, Washington and California um, are the are what I would say the first examples, and a little bit in the Northeast too, um, in some areas as well. But it, it's part of rewilding, and then it's also part of efforts of these new groups called Wildlife for All. These animal rights activists, these rewilders, these preservationists, vegans—they <laughs> all kind of have the same uh, motives and motivations. Um, but they have seen the success of Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson, have said, "Where's our piece of the pie?" And they have misinformed the public about this. And they said that, you know, all these monies, you know, coming from Pittman Robertson and guns and ammunition, why should bloodlust be funding conservation decisions? It's so counterintuitive. And they're misinterpreting what that means. It's not because we're out for harming people with these tools. We use these tools for many purposes, home defense, hunting, what have you, archery. Um, even fun. And I'm not fun. afraid to say it. Even fun. Shooting yes. guns is fun. <laughs> it is. And it keeps you measured and disciplined and you know when to use it and when not to use it. And having those monies go back to conservation is great. And we've seen a surge of gun ownership in this country since COVID. And people don't know that those monies that or their firearms that they've purchased, a portion of those proceeds have gone to conservation. So when they learn that, they're like, oh, that's actually a great added benefit to my purchase. I didn't know. And so they see that it's not this dangerous activity. And we, we saw recently um, not so much a direct hit on Pittman-Robertson quite yet. It was temporarily concerning. But when the education department defunded hunters' education courses in schools, because under the so-called Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, they were like, oh, it's a dangerous weapon. We can't have this. So they defunded that component. And we had bipartisan support to restore that funding because people saw the value in that. It taught kids, you know, conservation, being responsible, how to gut a deer or to, you know, learn about your surroundings, be educated about things. So both Republicans and Democrats overwhelmingly voted to restore that provision um, from this, you know, education policy component and, and restore and exclude rather um, archery equipment and firearms from this dangerous weapons category. Uh, it, it's kind of an opaque thing, but it was an education law. I can't E-S-E-A. That's what the acronym is. Um, but people saw even Democrats saw what that would do to teaching actual gun safety to conservation funding. And Representative Mark Green was the person behind uh, putting those monies back in for funding. And it's great because now we have that and hopefully that mistake is never made again. But not surprisingly, we do see bureaucrats take great programs and, and undermine it. And then we're not only seeing the kind of this remaking of wildlife agencies. I hate to say this and, and, and report this to your audience, but I even see people at Department of Interior, Fish and Wildlife Service undermining these very principles too. They're undermining Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson by retooling their mission or implementing policies like lead phase outs. And, and there is a debate over, do we still want to continue to use lead? Okay, let's have that debate. But right now, until the science is there, um, so far there hasn't really been support scientifically so much to say, yes, you have to in totality ban lead because lead is a very cheap thing to procure. It's a lot cheaper than copper, bismuth, and some of the other alternatives being touted. And, and it's effective. And it's effective. And I've used a copper bullet for hunting deer, and it damaged a bit of a shoulder piece that I wanted to, you know, have and take with me. And it, it 
it was it was good, but in terms of placement, like I didn't like how much damage it had. And a lead bullet probably wouldn't have been so destructive um, to that portion of my deer shoulder, uh, the first deer that I ever got actually a few years ago. And so we have to give people choices. But what this administration has done in, in the agencies where these wildlife management decisions are supposed to be upheld, they're putting in people, installing people, whether they're political appointees or hiring these staffers who do not agree with hunting a lot of the times. It hasn't been a full-out assault, I would say, against hunting, but they've done little incremental policies. They have not adhered to no net loss, like not um, closing off public lands to hunting opportunities. But but we have seen closures, 60 million acres in Alaska closed off to caribou hunting. Um, we've seen other closures, or they're conditioning future openings if the areas implement lead phase-outs, which is not how these management decisions are supposed to go about. Or we see an interior secretary who was a Green New Deal sponsor, a per- supporter of 30 by 30, um, again, n- you know, put behind decisions to not delist the grizzly bear or, or her counterpart, rather, Martha Williams and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Or we have BLM uh, pushing these conservation lease rules that may not respect hunting and fishing on multiple use lands. Or anything. Or anything. Exactly. And so we we see kind of the shirking of responsibilities. Like I said, it's not full-fledged in the federal government quite yet, but they're working their way to chipping away at it. If they're successful and, and influenced fully by, let's say, these preservationist groups, who is to say that they wouldn't pursue an agenda that divorces themselves like these kind of other campaigns are doing to change state wildlife agencies? Why would they stop at wildlife agencies at the state level? Because that all goes back to Department of Interior, who gives these monies through Pittman Robertson and Daniel Johnson. The next target will be Department of Interior more in a more full-fledged way. So we're coming up to the end, and we, we're not talking, we haven't talked yet about one of the most important things I wanted to talk about. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening at the SEC and the the National Asset Company, or the National, what are they called? Natural Asset Company. What's that all about? Because it just seems crazy to me. This does encompass lands. It may imperil conservation, and it will actually imperil, again, productive and consumptive uses of land, energy development, what have you. The Securities and Exchange Commission wants to create this new listing determination or listing requirement to create sustainable generating revenue enterprises what is being known as or what is being touted as a natural asset company. And what this is, according to their own rule, this is not me making it up. These can be um, natural asset companies can have their rights leased to foreign nations or so-called private landowners. And that can be interpreted as a financial asset manager if we're talking private landowners such as BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, or foreign nations. What's on the top of everyone's mind? the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, other adversaries like Iran, Russia, what have you. So they could create a natural asset company. Maybe they're in bed with each other, too, because we do see some uh, financial asset managers working in sync with, you know, or investing in China. BlackRock has holdings in PetroChina, but they don't like fossil fuels here, which is funny. Or they go back and forth with it uh, since they've been called out. So we could have these different entities creating these so-called sustainable generating revenue enterprises, and then they could control the future of property rights, public lands access, and having, like you said, only the elites own land is very counterintuitive to the American conservation ethos. And we want to have property rights. We want to have public lands access. We want to have the things that we've been able to enjoy and not be restricted from 
living off the land or accessing land for recreational or kind of fun activities. And the way that these enterprises were to be revenue generating, according to the rule, is by offering a carbon credit system. I wish I were joking, but they said that that is a way to measure success or productive success or or, um, financial success of these so-called sustainable enterprises. And if we examine how carbon credits are doing, they're not doing so hot. A country buying a carbon credit can be an excuse for them to still be very bad environmentally or to virtue signal on this. And we have seen companies like Nestle, Volvo, uh, some fashion brands and others buy hundreds of millions of dollars worth of carbon credits. And those carbon credits actually worsen the environment or they're shown to be phantom credits. And similar to carbon offsetting, that whole regime of offsetting your carbon emissions, if you buy these kind of credits, if you fly, um, you're not really doing anything to reduce your carbon footprint. It's just a virtue signal. And you're... I mean, the whole, first of all, I'm not, without getting into the science of CO2 and and all that, although I'm always happy to, but (laughs) outside of that, it's just all made up. Like, it's literally all made up. And whenever you have a a market that's all made up, connected to an issue that's not all made up, but not understood like people act as if we understand it, and you put it through a bureaucratic set of rules— like what the SEC is proposing, and it's protected under the umbrella of the federal government, politically protected. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing I've ever seen in my life that's more ripe for corruption. And I mean, it's just pure corruption. It, it will just make people ri- certain people rich and certain people poor. That's all it is going to do. It's going to exacerbate <laughs> trust and legitimacy of certain institutions. And I want to hone in on several bullet points, if I can, Jack, here. So the SEC has no jurisdiction over federal lands or even private lands. They shouldn't be in this business whatsoever. Another point of contention is why is the government assigning value to nature through ecosystem services under and, and, uh, you know, getting into the market of selling natural assets or protecting natural assets and making them profitable? That's another problem. Um, This is also... Can can I Mm -hmm. say something about that? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I I was reading through the rule, and the way they talk about it, they talk they the way they think and write about these things on this value aspect, like we need a way to value the 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 um the natural value of it, as if there aren't all these there are all all sorts of ways that we value exactly the the nature and the natural pieces of a, a piece of property or whatever, like that all goes into the way that that property is managed, assessed, assessed, all of these things. And for them to just make, again, it's just made up rhetoric. Unicorn numbers. Yeah. <laughs> if we're being honest. So they're creating this new rubric to assign a value on land to invite more government control. And then it's meant to keep people off from that land in many ways, in a multitude of ways. And then some other aspects of this, too. Um, the carbon credit system, of course, is very contentious and very weird. And obviously doesn't work. Um, And this is also a subsidiary of the environmental, social, and governance movement. You're going to see more of these ideas of uh, conserving or or making something sustainable in line of, you know, uh, monetizing, you know, the air we breathe, the water we breathe, the land we recreate on. And and this is not a market thing. This, This is the government basically telling, hey, private sector, we're giving you the green light to do this. This is a crony capitalist partnership between the federal government and these cronies 
who claim to be for the free markets, but they're not. They're distorting right. the markets through ESG. And now they found this other wraparound through ESG with biodiversity impact or biodiversity reporting and are going to have an outsized influence over land. And which is why I've always been very careful about fellow conservatives saying, let's you know privatize every single bit of land. And when I hear that, uh, my ears kind of perk, but not in an excited way, in a kind of very alarmed way. Because stay away from me. <laughs> I, I'm I'm friendly. People know people know I'm I'm not aggressive in Watch any out. manner. <laughs> Only when provoked. I'm kidding. No, no. I'm I'm very easygoing. But I can refute this point really clearly because we have to be concerned again. If if you create that idea, it will invite, let's say, the financial asset managers like BlackRock to come. And even if you have some assurances, you know, it goes back to the states and then it can go back to private interests. I'm still worried that someone like China will find a workaround through these natural asset company arrangements, even if it says, you know, no opening to this. They're known to shirk laws and and shirk responsibilities. They find out carve outs, even if, you know, laws are made to deter them. They always find a way. They find an American to partner with, and then they're able to enter this type of agreement. And so we can now say with these natural asset company, let's say listings, if these were to go through, that the left is actually the one wanting to sell and privatize federal land. Mm -hmm. Because what these will do is these will enroll. There are three categories. Um, There's a group that your listener should be aware of who is pushing this. It's called the Intrinsic Exchange Group. It's a mouthful to to put out there. So they have this idea of natural asset companies. It comes in three iterations, natural lands, working lands, and hybrid lands. Hybrid lands are those conservation areas I was talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. enrolling National parks, potentially, BLM land, forest service land, along with private land and state lands. And they are so far inviting these NACs to come and oversee them, like we have seen in Montana, for instance, and also Wyoming. There are two conservation areas there. If you Google conservation areas, Montana, Wyoming, you'll see the ones that I'm alluding to. And research and go into a rabbit hole (laughs) to see what's going on there. Five million acres in Montana, 6.3 in Wyoming. And so they're basically, the federal government is creating these conservation areas without any consultation of localities, uh, attorneys general, stakeholders, what have you. And they're kind of teeing up natural asset companies to come in and oversee these conservation areas. Scary stuff. And what we see sometimes with these arrangements that pretend to be for, you know, protect 30% of waters and lands by 2030, or this will be a conservation area to help protect an endangered species or these very sensitive areas. What we have seen with these so-called conservation plans, whether it's the BLM conservation and landscape health rule or natural asset companies, it's not only the productive, consumptive individuals or companies who lose. It eventually trickles down to the recreationists. I've seen this way too many times where unless there are assurances guaranteed, most of the time no access is protected. It eventually becomes a no-use area where no one, not even recreationists, are able to go there because – They've been the managers have been given a license or those who oversee these areas are given a license to keep them off, you know, make them wilderness areas. So very few people can access or to make them a national park, which should be accessible. But they make it harder to access in certain areas. They they impose a timed entry fee or they close, you know, certain portions of of national parks during covid or what have you. And you're starting to see in regulation buried deep within a, more avenues for them to take it off limits. And, and some of these avenues will be. Um, will be presented as being limited in nature, but that they're there means that they can be used and not be limited because, you know, the conservation easement, conservation easement is one example where in there it says, if you have to keep people off of it, you can. So it's like presented as sort of, 
not too bad, but it's there, and obviously they're going to use it. It's So I was half kidding, maybe half, maybe one-third kidding when I said stay away from me when I talked about the privatization. <laughs> I want to end our conversation on that issue because I think that's a big one for conservatives. And I'm going to sort of present my perspective, and then you're going to have the last word and say how wrong I was, and then we're going to shut this puppy down. So here's my perspective. I do generally think that private ownership of things is better. I have moderated my view, though, that we should privatize all federal lands. I have not moderated my view, however, that by other than the sort of crown jewel national parks that are defined literally by the national park, not by these expanded definitions of mm -hmm. national park, like the Grand Canyon proper, mm -hmm. and that's it. Those contain the federal government. I don't care, although I'd rather even they go to the states. Here's what I think, though. Everything should go to the states. And the reason is, is I have no faith in the federal government not ultimately applying all of these dumb rules across the board to all of, the, all of these federal lands. If the federal government would manage the lands the way they're supposed to, then I would— I might think the federal state's too big, but we can argue on the margins. I'm not going to die on the hill of sending it all down to the states. But I just have no faith in our federal government anymore to do that. And at least if you put them all down, if the states have control, you might have some goofy states who do goofy things, but there will be other states that are less goofy. And that's my reasoning for not wanting the federal government to own all this stuff and to push it down to the states. And then states can, you know, they want to privatize some, you know, that will be a political debate to have on the state level. I'll disagree with you a little bit there um, because you do have representatives at the state from BLM for a service that you do work with. And so states should be aware of what happens when their lands are enrolled by the federal government. So I would like to keep it. And we saw under the Trump administration, those lands were being stewarded much better. Anytime we go back and forth, we tend to see, you know, mismanagement there. The only state I could see hypothetically where a state possibly would take over control doesn't mean I'm personally endorsing. I'm, I'm playing hypotheticals here. I think the only state that could probably make a case for this would probably be Utah. Doesn't mean I personally endorse it, perhaps, because um, like I said, I'm a little concerned, you know, what happens when you privatize all those lands. But if I'm not arguing for privatization. I'm arguing right. for getting the getting getting as far away from Washington as you can. And I'm not asking. That I'm, may be tricky to, to do. I don't know if anyone has fully explored it. I don't know if I would support such a. Yeah, I'm not asking. You. I'm just we're just having a closed up conversation no, no, course, with two course. different perspectives. No, no. I, I think you do. States should be aware of what's happening on their federal lands. If they're not, that's a problem. It is probably very convoluted and an ordeal to to do transferring from one to another. A lot of people don't want to have that conversation. It's a very difficult conversation to have. Um, I don't know if I'd be personally comfortable with such a transference, but I, like I said, we may see some states explore this in the future. Um, but if the federal government does not learn how to manage the lands better, they'll invite this kind of stuff to happen. Um, these kind of schisms or these you know, movements to remove that. And, and that would be very tenuous in my position. So they have to solidify relationships with people on the ground so they don't create or foment further distrust. I'm not confident this administration will do that. I think they're inviting more tension out west. Um, taking away the BLM office from Grand Junction was a mistake. That absolutely should have stayed there because it was more responsive to folks on the ground. And people are greatly distrustful when a bureaucrat is far away in Washington and dictating to them how to manage their land. So 
it's it's a it's a interesting debate to have. Um, but like I said, the only state I could see potentially doing this um, would be Utah. But then you get into this discussion of, uh, you know, does this give the left ammunition to say, see, Republicans don't want to preserve this and contort our thinking into this? Or, or do they conflate, you know, state management with privatization? Because that's how they do frame it. So let's have that. Not that. Yeah. That's them. Have that debate. Yeah. It, I'm not conflating anything. I'm saying Utah, Utahans, is that what they're called? Yeah. People, the people of Utah are in a better position to determine how public land is managed than people in Washington, whatever that means. And, you know, it's easy when we're just talking about hiking. But whenever you talk about the more controversial things like like uranium development around the uh, – not around the Grand Canyon, but is what is called within the Grand Canyon, but it's not. Yeah, it's a bit away. It's like 40 miles away. Yeah, it it's, mm-hmm. it's way away. And when you take that away, the people there wanted to be able to do it. Or you talk about um, developing uh, in Anwar or, or mm-hmm. you know, in in different um, places in Alaska. The Alaskans wanted to do that. You have yeah. Washington come. You know, public land development, pu- public land use is like free speech. It's all easy when everyone's just going hiking. It's whenever you get to the controversial stuff that that your commitment to public use matters. And I just have, just like I have no faith in my federal government. <laughs> protecting my 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 freedom of speech because they violate it all the time, not mine, but ones. I have far more faith in states protecting rights, and at least at at the state level, you have you have competition between the fifty. No, oh, that's just kind of the way I look at but it. But as the laws that dictate public land state um, the various different uses that were traditionally told should be occurring, they have to be respected. The problem is when you have the Biden administration come in and say, we're going to pick and select and choose. Yeah. That's where I think the distrust and the disdain comes from. But they should be following the law. And if the law is followed, then I think people will have more trust in the federal government, let's say, maybe overseeing or perhaps, you know, having it under their umbrella. And and so when when they don't adhere to FLIPMA, which is the law that, that governs BLM use, um, there's the Antiquities Act. The, when I understand where people want the federal government to be pulled back when you see abuses of the antiquities. Absolutely. But I think the way that you can still maintain, let's say, conventional order and and perhaps not foment distrust is if you have more oversight over future or maybe retroactively, you know, looking into it. But for for future considerations, there have to be more checks and balances. And it has to allow for all these multiple uses. Um, Reforms to the Antiquities Act include it could be approval from the county, Approval from the state legislature, I think by two thirds majority, getting Congress's approval. And so when we see more checks and balances like that and you have for future openings, especially, I don't know how retroactively that would work. Um, and, and that's something I need to ponder a little more um, just to at least hear the viewpoint, even if I don't necessarily agree with it in terms of transferring it over to the states at this point in time. Um, but we need more oversight over these designations, not these carte blanche million acre outposts that really undermine what public lands use should be. And right. it does also include some productive uses. That's just how we've been oriented. And then now we're seeing kind of this preference to some productive uses that may be more destructive environmentally than conventional oil, like solar and wind. And so it, it's very lopsided. Um, the federal government does not do itself any favors and it doesn't assuage concerns, nor does it engage really in stakeholder relationships at this point in time. 
So they have a lot of trust to rebuild. I don't think this administration would be that one to do that, um, to make the case as to why there have to be federal lands and how to engage stakeholders. And often what you see is kind of like federalism. We don't see federalism really adhered to, like getting the input of the states for forest management or BLM lands. Uh, You see a sidestepping of that. So I think without necessarily a transference, I think it's just having conversations with states and look or arrangements or, or more clear stakeholder relationships and arrangements with, you know, the federal representatives there and have more dialogue. If that were to happen, I think the relationship would be repaired. Trust would be more visible um, and we wouldn't have these problems. But federal government creates a lot of problems and kind of foments distrust in this respect. And um it's not something I don't think we're really going to be tackling as a major issue because public lands are very popular and they should be. But the, the problem is public lands should be made for all, not for a select few. And that's what we see happening here. But it's interesting. Like I said, I think only Utah maybe would be able to succeed there. I don't know what the aptitude is for other states because uh, whether it's a, a Western Democrat state or a Western Republican state, um, public lands are very popular. So I don't think Republicans should be or conservatives really should be saying, yeah, sell all the land or get rid of it because it is very popular and it's it's very hard to get access to private land for hunting and fishing um, out west. So people want to keep that. And there's a lot of value to that. And then the grazers have had longstanding leases and, and same with farmers and ranchers. And they love that. And, and, you know, to disrupt that system, too. From this kind of more conservative side, I don't I don't know if people want to see that either, um, if they like those arrangements. So it just depends. Um, but I, but I do think we should be advocates for public land for multiple uses. I promised that Gabriella would have the last word, and there she had it. <laughs> now, Gabriella, we're going to close up. But first, I want to ask you where can folks find you? You on social media? I know that you are. Give us a rundown of where they can find out more about what you do. Yes, Independent Women's Forum, Center for Energy and Conservation, if you want to see my work. And I know we'll be working with Heritage on a lot of stuff with your guys' center, so anytime we can collaborate, I would be more than happy to do so. Um, I'm on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I have a podcast, District of Conservation, separate from my IW work. I write for Town Hall. I have my byline in too many places, uh, and I like to, you know— share my adventures with with social media followers. Um, I also have a video series, Conservation Nation, with the Committee for Constructive Tomorrow. So I have my hands full in all different pools. And uh, I would look forward to connecting with anyone who's interested in in talking more about these issues. Awesome. Told you she was involved in everything. So (laughs) thank you to everyone who took some time. And I admit it's more time today that we took than normal. But this is the kind of thing I like to talk about. Took some of your time out of today to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast... Tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out and email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Let me know how we're doing. If we should shut this thing down next year, I know you're not going to say that, but if you think it, let me know or how we can improve it. Gabriella, John, any final words? I'm going to say Power Hour Plus. Power Hour Plus. There you go. Merry Christmas. And uh, you do want coal for Christmas this year. There you go. An investment in the future. So there you go, folks. Remember to email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thank you, John. Thank you, Gabriella. Thank you for being a guest. And most importantly, thank all of you for listening, especially if you hung out to the end. And have a happy, happy holiday, whatever you celebrate. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>